0: Um, today's scripture reading is Acts 2 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up accordingly to the defiant plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, before it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You may be known to be the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your pres- presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the pa- patriarchic David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard that this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We are continuing in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, and this time, January, February, it's time of the year that we tend to talk about vision of our church, and especially with two-year anniversary, it seemed fitting that we start uh, this big book uh, about the establishment of the church. And so we're in chapter two today with this sermon. We're actually caught in the middle of a sermon. We heard the first part of the sermon uh, last week as Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, And there's tongues like a fire over their heads, and there's the sound of rushing wind, and there's the voices of uh, 15, at least, different languages that are spoken. And we talked about that, and Peter gets up and he says, this day is about what Joel talked about. And he begins a sermon, first starting about the Holy Spirit, and that's why we cut it off in the middle of his sermon, because he ties it to the day of Pentecost, and he says, the Spirit being poured out is what was happening right here. But beginning where we pick up today, Peter continues in his sermon, and it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is, is not mentioned very much after the first of the sermon. He moves to talk about Jesus Christ. This is a sermon about Jesus, and it's interesting because Jesus himself said this is what would happen when the Holy Spirit comes, and John chapter 16, it says, the Spirit will come and the Spirit will glorify me. All the plans that the Father has given to me, I, I now execute, but the Spirit is coming to glorify my work. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit comes onto the scene, but then the church gets founded on the principles of Jesus Christ, not just on the Spirit. And the Spirit promotes Christ and glorifies Christ. And so we continue in Peter's sermon, but this sermon is about Jesus. And let's pray now and ask for the Holy Spirit's help to glorify the Son, Jesus. We do ask that, you Holy Spirit, that you would glorify the Son. The name above every name. The name of Christ would be lifted up and that we would bow the knees of our hearts. That we would call you Christ and Lord And that the Son would be glorified so that then the Father is glorified and so the Spirit is glorified. But we come to you in the name of the Son who has given us life, who has accomplished his great work on your behalf. And it's his name that we cling to for acceptance and peace and righteousness. And it's his name we want to talk about. Would you honor that today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, one of the, the extracurriculars that I did in high school was that I was on the, the mock trial team. Some of you have heard me talk about my experiences on mock trial before. This is basically a high schooler's way of being a part of a courtroom, a trial of some kind. And this was a mock trial. It was a made-up trial, and there was prosecutors, there was defenders, there was a judge, there were attorneys, there were witnesses, all the things that you would see on a, a daytime, you know, crime drama show. And, uh, and so I was a part of this, and it was part of my, you know, putting on my resume, I was an attorney. And um, part of my job, of course, was to prosecute the case. This was a murder trial that was made up for us, But one of the confusing things, and one of the frustrating things, is that the case itself was intentionally made unclear. It was intentionally ambiguous. Nobody really knew what had happened in this made-up case. Um, And and it was designed that way. So as you read the transcripts of what the witnesses would say, there would be clues about how the witness was trustworthy, and there would be a little bit of doubt though, like something that you could use against that witness. Uh, and that was left in there. There would be, you know, the testimonies of, of the law enforcement, and you're like, well, did they really find it like that? There was enough there, in other words, to cast doubt on the truth, but there was also enough there to think that this was the truth, and of course, it was designed that way. The whole case was set up so that you couldn't know the truth, so that both sides in this mock trial could have a good showing. The defense would have something to say, and the prosecution would as well. It was unclear On purpose so that everyone could put their own spin on it so we did our best and we won I just had to include that Uh, we won an award right our team did we did a good job Um, but even as we argued it we knew that there were holes in the truth and so we knew that we were exposing ourselves to uh, someone else being able to rebut what we were going to say and I think a lot of people think that truth, capital T truth, what is true about life, the world, the universe, everything, is similar to this. Oftentimes we can think this way, even if we are convinced of the truths of the Scriptures. We can think, well, life is full of uncertainties, and there's a lot of things that are out there, and this, this whole world is like that case. Like there's, there's things that are true, but you've got to kind of put your own spin on it you got to try to find out what's true for you. you got to figure out what is the best version of the truth and then argue for that. And that's kind of the way that our culture and our world thinks is that truth is unclear and we have to do our best. And we resist uh, putting uh, all of our truth under one narrative, under one story, under one idea. That is something that is resistant in our culture. But the Apostle Peter has no problem doing that. (laughs) In this pivotal moment when the Holy Spirit's been poured out and people are saying, what does this mean? What is is true? What is happening right now? Peter stands up with the confidence that the Holy Spirit gives him, and he says, after this Holy Spirit comes, what's happening right now, what you need to hear is about this man, this narrative, this understanding of the world, this truth, And this truth he has no apologies about saying this is exactly what you must believe and know and do. He's very clear. What does he preach about? What does he preach his sermon on? Well, it can be summarized in one word, Jesus. The whole sermon is about Jesus, the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. What do we do? We are baptized into the name of Jesus. We repent to Jesus. And so it's a call to clarity, and it's a call to clarity for us this morning, for us to come to Jesus or to return to Jesus if we're wondering what is true. If we're wondering, even those of us who have believed or given, uh, spoken about Jesus before, if we are confused about what life is about, if we're feeling unfulfilled, if we're wondering what is the direction to things, we come back again to this one narrative. It's the only story that's above every other story. It's the name that's above every other name. It's the name of Jesus. Here's what I want us to see. We get clarity on life's ultimate truth by returning to this confession. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Whatever our confusion is about the truth, whatever feeling of lostness that we have, we will get clarity by returning to this truth, this confession. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Unapologetically believing and trusting in this confession. Jesus is both Lord and Christ and Christ. This is Peter's conclusion at the end of his sermon. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus, whom you crucified. This is the first sermon of the New Testament. This is the first sermon of the church. And it is a sermon by Peter about Jesus. So the sermon I'm preaching right now is a sermon about the sermon about Jesus, okay? Just to blow your mind for a second. Actually, one of my kids this week said, Dad, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, Jesus. And he rolled his eyes, like, because he knows every sermon is about Jesus, right? And I said, but for real. You know, the sermon is called A Sermon About Jesus. And his mind just, you know, exploded. So that's what we're doing That's what Peter's preaching about. That's what I'm preaching about because it's all about Jesus. And it's amazing because it sets up this pattern in the book of Acts where there is is a a speech or a sermon, action first, and then a sermon. The action that just happened is the day of Pentecost, and now there's a sermon about it. And that's actually what happens throughout the book of Acts. There's eight sermons by Peter. There's nine by Paul. There's one by Stephen and one by James. And so we have 19 sermons, about 25% of the book of Acts is sermons about the actions that just happened. So something will happen, a healing will happen, and then someone will stand up and say, well, this is why this is happening. The action is followed up by a sermon. And so what's beautiful and amazing about what Luke does here in writing this book is he continues the pattern of Jesus. You remember Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in this book is this, this is the continuation of the story of what Jesus did and taught. His actions and His words. And He says now Christ has ascended. Well, He continues to do the work. He's doing things, and then there's, He's teaching, but through His apostles. And so the pattern continues. We listen to the first sermon of the, of the whole church here, and it's a sermon about Jesus. It is a Christ-centered sermon. Peter is the goat of all preachers, right? The greatest of all time, because he tells us how to preach about Jesus. And actually, when we look at this, we see ways that we actually learn to listen to a sermon, because this is the quintessential sermon. How do we understand it? Three words I want to draw out that help us not only understand about Christ, but also understand what Peter is doing, telling us about Christ, The three words that are used here in this passage are hear, know, and do. They're all found here. First, hear. That's his beginning. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Listening, hearing is part of knowing about Jesus. What does he want them to hear? Well, To summarize it, he wants them to hear the story about Jesus and the Scriptures about Jesus. The story that he tells is a story that we often talk about. It's the story of Christ, how he came as a human being. He was a man, this Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This was no ordinary man. He was was able to do supernatural works. He was the God-man. What happened to this man? Well, he was crucified. Look with me at verse 22 through 24. Here's this is the story as he tells it. Um, You yourselves know, verse 23. Sorry, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is what happened. He was crucified. Why was he crucified? Well, two weeks ago we said he was crucified because Judas betrayed him, which is true. But two more reasons are added here. He was crucified, number one, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This crucifixion was not a surprise. This was a planned event. It was God's plan of redemption from all eternity past to offer up his son. That's one reason. Another one is because of the lawlessness of Jews. He said that. He was delivered over to the hands of lawless men. This plan of God does not, in other words, excuse the human sinfulness of crucifying Jesus. According to their perspective, and the Bible is clear about this, that God's plan is in place, and yet we as human beings, we don't know His plan. We're not part of His knowledge. And so what we do, we are responsible for. And according to their perspective, they were not being robots. They crucified the Lord of life. So, was it Judas' betrayal? Was it God's plan? Or was it man's sinfulness that caused Jesus to die? Yes. That's why this event, the crucifixion of Jesus, stands at the center of all of history. As Peter understands it here in this capital T truth, he says, this, according to the plan of God, and according to man's sinfulness, came together in this one place, and Jesus died. He was crucified. But he didn't stay dead. There was a resurrection. Jesus is the God of the resurrection. It says here beautifully, it was not possible for Him to be held by death. This is the God of resurrection. And so He was raised from the dead. And He was here, as we said, the first week for 40 days, showing Himself to many people. And then He ascended. Look at verse 32 with me. Then Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is the story so far. Jesus was raised from the dead. Then He ascended into the heavens. This is a story about Jesus. His person and His work. What He came here to do. But Peter also tells us this is the Scriptures About Jesus, because as he talks about the story of Jesus, he takes parts of the Bible and applies it to this story. And so the the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and all of his work can be outlined into events, but it's also the fulfillment of scripture. And here again, Peter pulls out two passages from the Old Testament, just like he did when Judas, when they were replacing Judas a couple of chapters ago. He pulls out a couple of psalms. Well, here again, you can tell Peter's been doing his quiet times in the psalms. He pulls out two psalms again. And he reasons from these Scriptures about Jesus. First, about His resurrection. He says, look at verse 27 with me for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He's quoting David there from Psalm 16. And he reasons from this. You can see his reasoning in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and that his tomb is with us to this day. What did David mean, in other words, in Psalm 16 when he said, you will not let me be corrupted. And I can tell you the truth right now, Peter says, David died and his bones are with, I mean, he was corrupted. So what was David talking about? He says, David was prophesying about something maybe he fully didn't understand himself, but one day there would be a Christ who brings the power of the resurrection. And so David knew that he would not be corrupted in the grave forever, that there would be a resurrection from the, from the dead and life everlasting. Peter also says that the scriptures talked about Jesus' ascent uh, sorry his yeah his ascension in Psalm 110. He says in verse 34 here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a quotation of from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm, the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament by the way, is Psalm 110. And he says this psalm Even though David was saying, the Lord said to my Lord, David himself never ascended, is his argument here. He never was in the heavenly places with the Lord. And so he must, as a prophet of God, been talking about, whether he knew it or not, this future date when his own son, David's son, David's Lord, would sit at the right hand of God and be ascended in the heavens. Jesus himself Quotes Psalm 110 and applies that passage to himself. So does Paul a little later. So does the author of Hebrews say that Psalm 110 talks about Jesus. It is a messianic psalm. And so Peter is on solid ground here. What is he doing? He's saying, The scriptures are about Christ. I can look at the scriptures and see now there's a narrative that leads to a son of Jesus Christ. He's doing exactly what Jesus did after his resurrection when he's talking to those who were on the road to Emmaus. And you remember those two disciples who were talking to Jesus. They didn't know it. But Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, talked to them about how the Scriptures were about Himself. And their hearts burned within them because they knew that the Scriptures were being fulfilled in their midst. And they could see the story of Jesus now meeting the story of the Scriptures. And that is what Peter is doing here. It's all about Jesus. Men of Israel, hear. The story and the Scriptures are about Christ. Listen to the Scriptures themselves. Did you know that hearing the truth is part of responding to the truth? Hearing is an act of faith. In the Old Testament, uh, the greatest kind of song that they would say or prayer that they would pray over and over again was called the Shema. And the Shema says, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Listen, listen with faith. Remember the Pharisees, they they didn't know because they couldn't hear Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, Jesus says. But he says about the Pharisees, in hearing you don't hear. You're not listening by faith to what is being said. And Peter tells us, Part of responding to the truth is hearing the truth. How do you hear it? The question is, how do you hear this? When Peter talks about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, when he talks about this being the fulfillment of the scriptures, do you hear? That's my story. That's the truth. Does your heart say, this is my understanding? This is the Christ. These are my scriptures. This is my story you make the connection how do you hear do you have the ears of faith to hear that not just some things happened and maybe we can learn a thing or two from them and maybe there's some truth contained in this idea of Jesus but that that in the in the culmination this is actually the culmination of history and scripture the life and death and resurrection of Jesus it's right here do you hear it how do you hear it Second word that he uses is know. After he says, Here, he says, You need to know. That's his conclusion. We already read it in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Know for certain. Know with assurance, we could say. Know securely. Know with confidence. After you hear about this Jesus, there needs to be, in other words, a kind of internal confirmation. Assure knowledge. It doesn't mean that you don't have questions. It doesn't mean that you don't have doubts. It doesn't mean that you don't need to investigate further. But do you know? You remember who Peter is talking to in this crowd. All of them have gathered around because of a big commotion. Fifteen plus languages being spoken at the day of Pentecost. And some, you remember, were saying, what does this mean? And others were, um, were doubting. Others were mocking. These people were drunk. And so Peter, knowing that, preaches them to all these ears. And he says... For some of you, there will be an internal confirmation of the truth. You hear with faith, and you know with certainty. This is what the Bible calls belief or faith. As the author of Hebrews would say, faith is the conviction of things not seen. See the similar language here, know for certain. What do they know? What he wants them to know is this, Jesus is specifically Lord and Christ. Let's take those in reverse order. Christ. He says, know this, Jesus is the Christ. That is His messianic title. He is the Messiah. The promised one. The coming Savior. And He's speaking, of course, to these Jews who have, been, who have come from all over the place in the diaspora. They've come all over the Greek world. And now they've come back and He says, this is the one that you've been looking for. This is the Christ. Imagine how hard it would be for them to hear that and to know that this is the Christ. It perhaps is not what they were thinking of when they thought what the Christ would look like. But he also says he is Lord, and while the Jewish audience would have initially had a hard time perhaps seeing that Jesus was the Christ, I would venture to say that for modern Americans, this second part is the bigger challenge that he is the Lord. That he is the one that everyone is to bow their knee to, that he is the one that requires allegiance—not just what with what you think or what you hear, but with how you live. What is your belief? What do you know for certain? The Scriptures say that we can have this assurance. It doesn't mean that assurance isn't fleeting at times. That there, there isn't a weakness to our faith at times where we struggle. Say, is this real? That's a natural part of being a Christian, walking with the Lord. But when you hear the story of Christ, and you hear it with the, the ears of faith, there should also be an internal confirmation of the truth. This is the true thing. It's not just a truth. It is the truth. Third and finally, do? That is their question at the end of the sermon. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They knew that the truth has more to to do than just with how we hear and what we know. It must also have something to do with how we live, what we do. What changes should I expect when I hear and when I know that this Christ, that this Jesus is both Christ and Lord? Well, the first thing we should expect is conviction. It says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart by the preaching of God's Word. They were cut to the heart. Now, the Word of God does many things. The Scriptures beautifully tell us that the Word of God fills us. The Word of God heals us. The Word of God um, makes us joyful. All these things, but the Word of God also cuts And it cuts when there is a gap between what is required and what you have to offer. That is what the situation that they find themselves in. They hear this Jesus, you know, that you have crucified, he says. It's your lawlessness, your sinfulness that has led him to be crucified. And they say, they're cut to the heart. What do we do? And of course, for us too, it is our sinfulness that led Jesus to the cross It is our lack of belief. What do we do with that gap between what is true and how we have experienced it or what we have believed? That is the essential question. When we realize, in other words, that Jesus is Lord in Christ and we have not followed Him as Lord in Christ. What do we do? Well, the one who provides the conviction, the one who provides the story, the one who is the fulfillment of the Scriptures is also the one who delivers us. We come to Jesus or we return to Jesus, whether it's the first time or the tenth time or the millionth time, we return back to Him because He is the one who provides this care and this guidance for us. He's the one who has given us life in God's name. He gives us the good news. The good news is about Jesus. To those who are cut in the heart, to those who feel like they're unworthy and they are unworthy, Jesus is the balm. And so we come to Him and we ask for faith. We ask for the faith. We say, I believe, but help my unbelief. And He gives us faith. We hear and we know the truth again. But there's also something else involved. It's called repentance. This is what he says brother, to the answer to the question, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is the turning away from this past life. It's a changing of their minds. He says, this is what you have to do. Turn away from what you've believed and thought outside of Christ, and now believe in Christ. Repent. Turn away from this life outside of Him. Turn towards this life in Him and be baptized. Baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. This would have been very offensive. Very offensive to the Jewish people because one of the rituals required for Gentiles to become Jews, they could become Jews through a process, and one of them was this ritual cleansing. So baptism wasn't brand new when Jesus came. Remember, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the wilderness. There's this cleansing ritual saying, you've got to be cleansed. But everybody knew the Gentiles had to be cleansed, but what he's saying to them is, you Jews from every nation, Even though you're here, you're following the law, you are here to celebrate the Feast of Weeks at Pentecost, you're doing what the law requires, but you don't have what you need. You have not been cleansed. You need to be washed. You, the covenant people of God, still need the cleansing that comes from baptism. And so do we. If we've believed in Christ, we repent of our sins, confess them, repent, turn away from them. We also must be baptized. It is not a meaningless gesture to be baptized. It is the outward sign of what God has done. It's not an empty thing. It's not something that just we want to have on the outside that's a confirmation of what's happening in our heart. It is God's mark. It is his one time mark. Are you baptized? that's part of responding to the truth. It's once, but the ongoing marks are repentance and faith. Those two continue. All of us, even with our baptized identity, continue in faith and in repentance, growing in faith, continuing to repent, continuing, in other words, to come back to the very one who is Lord in Christ. That's what the Gospel is. It's returning over and over again. When that gap comes in, when that conviction cuts our hearts, we return back to Jesus. How do you listen to a sermon? How do you respond to the truth? Well, you've got to hear it with ears of faith. There has to be more than just head knowledge. There has to be the confirmation of belief which leads to conviction, which leads to returning to Jesus in baptism, faith, and repentance. It's all about Jesus. Everything is about Him. Jesus is the one, the man who performed mighty works of God that no one else could do. Jesus was the one who was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and the lawlessness of men. He is the resurrected one, the only one who could not be held by the bounds of death, by the, held and bound by death. He's the only one who ascended. David couldn't do it. David couldn't ascend to the Lord. He couldn't say to my Lord, Be at my right hand. Jesus ascended to the Father. Jesus is your baptized identity. When you are in him, baptized into his name, then you are covered by him. Your identity before the Father. Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Everything that came before was leading up to Him. Jesus is Lord, the one who requires your allegiance. And He is the only hope for those who are ready to repent and believe. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray.